skeptical about custom beauty, honestly, y'all, I totally get it. My feed is flooded with customize this and personalize that, all promising, you know, to fix all of our beauty, hair, and skin problems. Truthfully, I was so skeptical when I saw this brand, but I'm a total believer now. When pros says custom, they actually mean it. Their products are no gimmicks, and your formula couldn't exist without you. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair care and skin care is made to order and personalized with unique blends of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. Their in-depth consultation analyzes over 80 factors for a complete view of your life and beauty goals. And they get personal. Pro's covers everything from your concerns to diet, exercise, and stress levels to uncover what's impacting your hair and skin health. Did you know, for example, that Minneapolis has like weirdly hard water, which apparently was affecting my hair. So like some of the ingredients that they put into my hair care was to like deal with the fact that we have hard water. Wow. I love that. They also asked me things like, you know, because I have had a baby recently, like, am I still breastfeeding? What are my hair goals? And I also really appreciated they asked like, how much effort do you want to put into your hair? Yeah, <laughs> because like I'm at the point, you know, I used to let, yeah, I used to do those, you know, put effort into my appearance, but now it's like, I just want to be able to walk out of the door without feeling self-conscious. Um, I, this is truly such a genuine endorsement. So I've really enjoyed using these products. But don't just take our word for it. In a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised control clinical trial, this is like the gold standard of all of these trials, Pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash justbreakup. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash justbreakup for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas, pros.com slash justbreakup. So Sam, it's our first ever Head & Heart Work Conversations interview debut. We're really excited about this, y'all, because we have had so much fun doing these interviews. We've been like really excited about the idea of like, adding some diverse content to our main feed and like yeah. bringing in other people's perspectives and experiences. So we're we're absolutely thrilled that we get to interview yeah. some really cool people and share this with you. Like to give some perspective, you know, Sam and I have been doing Just Break Up every Monday for the last three years. And now we are adding another element to our show. Every other Thursday, we're going to release these head and heart work conversations with with such esteemed guests. Like, I can't believe we got some of these people to be on our show. Mm -hmm. And also like how I just feel so deeply honored that our listeners will hopefully support us into this new endeavor, but also that we get to have these conversations um, that we get to dig our heels a little deeper into this head and heart work that we are doing. And I think mm. honestly, like, I know you agree with me, the, the interviews that we've already recorded, like have been profound to me. They've already mm -hmm. like, inspired me and challenged me and empowered me. And I know that today's interview with Lindsay C. Gibson is is going to do that for our listeners. I know it did it for us. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this um, 
I think that the conversation, particularly with Lindsay, who wrote one of my favorite books, y'all, which is um, Adult Children of Immature or Emotionally Immature Parents. Um, You know, I've read that book. I've recommended it to folks. I've dug into a lot of the content of it. And this conversation like brought to light a bunch of other things that I hadn't even thought about or considered in such profound ways. Yeah. One of the things I appreciated about this conversation was the idea that, you know, it's not the people with, who are the most toxic and volatile who are seeking therapy, right? It is the <laughs> right. ones who are trying to caretake or better mm. understand the toxicity or the abuse or whatever that they've endured. And that we have this narrative that we're the broken ones um, when we know, you know, that there are people out there who are functioning on a lot more toxic level than us or, or whatnot. Um, like, I think that brought a lot of empathy for me Um, into the picture and for our listeners and whatnot. Yeah, for sure. It was interesting because she sort of talked about the idea that like the folks that she sees are dealing with people who are deeply hurt and have these like deep emotional issues, but they themselves are like sort of the in between (laughs) between like between her and this like toxic parent or this parent who is behaving badly. Um, and like that, the inspiration around the book to like help the people yeah. do the caretaking in a way that supports them was super interesting to hear about and think about. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that for me was really interesting was that piece around caretaking and sort of this realization that like as a child of an emotionally immature parent, my, my go-to move is always going to be caretaking of like whoever is around me, right? Because that's, I've been taught that like, that's what I need to do in order to like make things less scary or, or you know, make sure that people are safe. And that it doesn't stop when I walk into my therapist's office. Yeah, that you're caretaking <laughs> for that mental health professional. Yeah, for sure. And it was like, it was so fun to listen to her describe that and be like, Oh shit. Yeah. Like that. There were a lot of oh shit moments in this conversation. Yeah, for sure. And even thinking, like, I would think, you know, my therapy is at 4 p.m. on Fridays, and I would go into therapy and think, like, oh my God, we're going to talk about this stuff. And then Drew's going to have to go into his weekend. Oh my God. (laughs) Thinking about this. Like, literally. (laughs) That is so funny. No, and it's funny. And like, this conversation with Lindsay gave me the tools to be able to talk to him about that and say like, Hey, I just want you to know that here's how I'm coming into this conversation a lot. And I'm trying not to, but like, this is top of like, I'm really thinking about this a lot. And like, he was like, you need to trust that I have the tools that I need in order to handle this stuff. So like, it's not your job. It's my job. And I was like, this was great. Thank you, Lindsay, for like yeah. helping us have this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Sam and I just wanted to share this intro to one, like remind you guys what we're doing with these head and heart work conversation, this new interview series. So you're not like, ah, oh, what is this thing on our feed? Um, but also mm-hmm. to uh, like, I guess, open the door a little to remind you that we are learning and growing and doing this head and heart work alongside of you. And these we're just so thrilled to be sharing these conversations with you. Um, We hope that you are inspired. We hope that you are empowered. We hope that you are challenged and we hope that Mm. you enjoy this conversation with Lindsay C. Gibson. Welcome to Just Break Up, the podcast about love, heartbreak, and all the relationship advice you don't want to hear. My name is Sierra DeMolder. 
And I'm Sam Blackwell. And this week on Head and Heartwork Conversations, we're talking to Lindsay C. Gibson, whose pronouns are she, her, a clinical psychologist who specializes in individual psychotherapy with adult children of emotionally immature parents. She is the author of many life-changing books, including Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, which I absolutely love, (laughs) and her newest companion book, Self-Care for Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. So, Lindsay, thank you so much for being here. We are so excited to have you. Um, I recommend your book all the time. (laughs) It is one of those books that has been um, really life-changing for me. because it really helped me see myself in a different way and really helped me approach my understanding of um, my parents, specifically my dad who passed away a few years ago, um, in a different way and sort of be able to offer more empathy for him as well as more empathy for myself and the ways that I was navigating through the world. So Sierra was not lying when I say that I recommend this book probably like every three episodes. It's because become a it joke. Has, <laughs> yeah, it's like... It's it's like I just like yet again. I'm like yeah, here we go. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about this book again. Um, so thank you, thank you so much for being here. Um, when when Sierra said that she reached out to you, I was like, we have to have her because this is uh, this is so helpful. This book has been so helpful, and it's informed so much of the advice that I give our listeners too because of the ways that you've you've taught me to see the world. So thank you. I'm I know that I just am like inundating <laughs> you with thanks, but it's it's so exciting to have you here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. I'm I'm just thrilled. And I, I thank you for saying all that, Sam. Um, and it tells me that the spirit of where I was when I wrote the books managed to reach you. And, mm. and that really feels good because if it increases empathy, not only for yourself, but for your emotionally immature parent, mm. that is absolutely where I hoped it would go. So thank you for that feedback. I love it. Um, So can you tell us uh, just a little bit about your journey personally and professionally that like led you here to this moment, to these, to this work um, and specifically to the realm of, you know, our parenting relationships and um, emotionally immature people in our lives? Yeah. Um, you know, it started, uh, probably when I was in graduate school the first time, um, I had a lot of training in psychological testing. And one of the things that they train you to do with some of the psychological tests is to kind of figure out where the person is developmentally, not just Mm -hmm. what their symptoms are, but you know, how are they put together inside? Are they functioning like an adult or, are they showing some immaturities or regressive, you know, uh, tendencies? And if so, at what age are we talking about here? So if you're a psychotherapist and you refer someone for psychological testing, I mean, it's good to get all the psychodiagnostics back, but it's also so helpful to say, you know, this person is highly intelligent. This person is very capable, but this person has the emotional maturity, you know, of a four-year-old mm-hmm. or a 14-year-old. Mm-hmm. And that is going to have these repercussions probably in their life, you know, like relationships, um, resilience, stress tolerance, you know, all these things you can predict from how an emotional four-year-old would be in the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, sure. Yeah. So I, so I came to my uh, doctoral training 
with that already in mind. And when I would meet with um, psychotherapy patients, they would be telling me about not only their problems, but they'd be telling me about the behavior of people that they had problems with. Mm. And so I'm listening to this with my uh, developmental hat on thinking, my gosh, you know, they're describing a three-year-old or <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like that's what a 10-year-old would think. Or, you know. And so I, I began to think in terms of helping them understand that in the emotional realm, maybe not in the rest of their life, but in the emotional realm of, of intimate relationships, this person in their life, you know, whether it was a parent or a spouse or a friend, was really functioning at this very young level. And I mm. found that when they were able to understand these people from that perspective, it just like turned a light bulb on. And suddenly mm. it wasn't about what they feared they had done wrong or, you know, uh, what was the matter with them. It was like, oh, yeah, that is the way that they are reacting. And so, you know, it gave them a, um, a theoretical framework, a concept for how to understand these people. And then the mm. other interesting thing was that as they're telling me about their symptoms and the behavior of the people around them, I'm noticing that the person sitting in my office is much more emotionally mature than the people they're complaining about. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, why are these people in therapy getting a psychiatric <laughs> diagnosis? <laughs> That's real. Yeah. You know, while yep. these other people who are causing, you know, uh, most of the problems are running wild and don't think they're doing anything wrong. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> that the That's truth? so real. <laughs> so then I, I think I think that sort of ignited my sense of mission about this. It was like, <laughs> For yeah, sure. this, this shall not stand. Um, <laughs> we're we're gonna we're gonna try to help people see what's really going on here. I love that. Yeah. No, I feel like Sierra and I are kindred spirits too, right? We, we get letters and we're like, why are you writing this letter and not this person who did this awful thing to you? Oh right? God. Like, they're the ones that need advice. Like, yeah. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously that I love your book, but um, I'm also wondering if you could just walk us through some of the basics of it. So like, what does it mean to be emotionally mature? So what are the hallmarks of it? And then I would love if you would talk about the different types of emotionally immature parents. Um, I know that you have those four different sort of like archetypes. Um, would you be willing to just walk through those for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, let me back up and give you just a little overview of emotional immaturity. And sure. I, I want to stress that people grow up like with these different strands of development, like you can have intellectual development that keeps pace with your chronological age. You can go to college, you can go to graduate school, you can run a business, you can run a corporation, okay? Your mind is working fine as long mm -hmm. as you're not in a relationship or dealing with emotional issues, okay? And you could also be, um, you know, very functional in, in other ways, in other areas of your life. Like you can have the, you know, the, the super PTA mom um, who, 
whose children are involved in everything. And you're thinking, wow, I feel so inadequate next to that person. But when you get in the realm of relationships or in the realm of emotional intimacy, you might see a completely different story. So um, mm. I just want you know, your listeners to keep in mind that, that that emotional immaturity is something that can develop on its own strand and it won't show up unless you get the emotionally intimate relationship, stress, or um, the person is, is faced with some kind of emotional situation because their mm. stress tolerance is not great. Um, so if you keep that in mind, you won't get so confused when you think, you know, why am I feeling this way about my mother or my father when actually, you know, everybody else thinks they're great. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that's real. Yep. <laughs> you know, they're, they're well admired. Um, they're, you know, uh, successful people or not. I mean, it doesn't matter. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of confusion that can go on because when that parent switches from the emotionally immature mode and flips over into the responsible adult place, and you're like, you know, was I wrong? You know, was that thing that happened with them? Was Did I mm. miss something? Maybe mm. I misperceived it, you know, because here they are being perfectly reasonable, even reapproaching me, wanting to talk. Like, what's going on? But they're very mm. inconsistent because of those different strands of development. Mm. In terms of types of... Um, of these emotionally mature parents, uh, the first type that I, and these are ones that I've identified just from listening to people for over 35 years. Um, the first type is the emotional type. And these are kind of more what you would imagine an emotionally immature parent to be like. They are very reactive, uh, very emotionally volatile, often very impulsive, extremely Mm. self-absorbed, extremely self-preoccupied. And they're, they just make life miserable for the people in their homes who have to walk on eggshells and Mm. worry about how dad's going to react or is mom going to blow up. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of uh, caretaking and suppression of your own emotional needs that goes on with the children of that type of parent. And everything becomes about how are we going to keep that parent stabilized? How are we going to make sure that they don't feel too bad about themselves? Because Mm. if their self-esteem gets threatened, they go into a nosedive and then everybody suffers. So it's just easier to take on those psychological functions for them so you don't have so much upset all the time. Wow. Mm. The second type is um, the driven parent. And uh, <laughs> so when I was joking about with the PTA mom, yeah. nothing yeah, yep. being a PTA mom. I was a PTA <laughs> mom. <laughs> yeah, I hope that doesn't mean I was emotionally mature. But <laughs> it's where the person is hiding their emotional immaturity behind super functioning. I mean, they, mm. they often have, um, you know, advanced degrees. They, they can be very social. They can get their kids to all the right activities, um, private schools, lessons. Um, they're at every game. I mean, they are very activity and accomplishment oriented. And they're very driven. And everything can be improved. 
it's like you're on a treadmill toward perfection mm. with them. Mm. And it ends up making the child feel like I can never be enough or I can never do enough or I have to always do my best. I, mm. In fact, I saw something in the paper, uh, might have been, oh, I know what it was. Um, it was it was it was something about the the people who um, were accused of selling nuclear secrets. Oh yeah, yeah, and one of <laughs> that the, wild story. Yeah, <laughs> one of the things that I think one of them said was, um, or, or maybe it was uh, the parent of one of those people said, um, "We Smiths, whoever, always do our best." I'm like, mm. oh no. <laughs> <laughs> it was the parents. The parents drove them to, <laughs> to steal the nuclear sub schematics and try it's and sell them to the a foreign parents. country. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't think about that as being in our culture anyway, in the American culture these days. You don't mm. think about that kind of parenting as being a problem. You know, mm-hmm. they even know mm. what to say. You know, because they read a million self um, self help and chi- and childcare books because they're very um, they like to learn and they're very driven that way. But what happens is that they don't have the ability to sit down eye to eye, quietly present with that child and be with them in their feelings, mm. or to be receptive and just sit with them in their pain, which is Mm -hmm. what all children need. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like they don't need you to say the right thing. They just need you to be there and feel with them. And that's what the driven parent really has trouble with. They're really Mm -hmm. scared of intense emotion. And so Mm -hmm. they tend to, you know, put the child back together and, you know, let's think about it this way. And it's not so bad. And we'll do this and we'll do it. You know, and what the child really needs is is a warm shoulder to cry on with a parent who can function as an emotional container for that child's misery at the mm-hmm. moment. And then, you know, when you get that, you bounce back. I mean, we're naturally resilient as a species if we get that connection mm-hmm. with another person. But they're afraid of that, like all emotionally immature people. They don't do well with emotional intimacy. And so mm-hmm. they end up not giving the child what the child really emotionally needs. Mm-hmm. And the child often feels bad about themselves because these parents often are silently uh, evaluating how well the child is doing, how they look to mm-hmm. the neighbors, you know, that kind of thing. So that's a, that's a um, sub-theme there. Mm. And then uh, another type of uh, third type of personality of these parents would be the rejecting type. And the rejecting type is just exactly what it sounds like. Uh, These are parents who probably would be totally great without children. That's not their thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're not interested in it. They want to be left alone to do what they want to do. Uh, they'll tend to bark or bite when the child comes into their sphere too much and bother them, quote unquote. Um, they're not interested in having a relationship really with the child and usually not much with other people either. 
Um, and those, those people are very, very, very hurtful to a child who needs that response to their overtures of affection. I had one client mm. once who said that, um, you know, being with her father was like constantly hurling herself against a locked door. Mm. Oof. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that's, that's what that parent feels like. And mm. then the, the final type is what I named the passive parent. And that's the parent that really looks like the quote unquote good parent. Uh, it's the parent that the child likes. Um, they're often thought of very fondly. Um, they can be great playmates uh, for children. Mm-hmm. They, they can have a, a kind of a Pied Piper quality about them that children like to be around. Um, and if you're noticing, maybe it's because they're like children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in a good way, you know? Sure. Yeah. But we're where it turns into being noticeable as being emotionally immature is where they really don't protect the child. They don't step in. Mm. They don't show empathy for what the child may be going through with the other parent Mm. or other situations in life. So this is the parent that can be even comforting and, um, you know, a, a loving parent to the child when they're together, but will stand by and not say a word when that emotional parent or that driven parent is actively being destructive to that Mm. child's feelings and security. You know, they'll just keep on reading the paper or they'll walk out um, or, you know, they just won't mention it. And when the child says, you know, dad, why don't you ever stop mom when she gets like that he'll say oh your mother doesn't mean it um Mm. you know she's she had a rough day or she gets like that sometimes we just have to get through it you know they're they just don't protect the children Mm. and lots of times Mm. it's only toward the latter part of therapy that people can really begin to see how hurtful that parent was to them That's not to take away from the good things that they gave their child at all, because thank goodness that that parent was there. Mm -hmm. But you have to have a complete reckoning within yourself about what really happened with both of your parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those are the um, those are the four types. All right, y'all know that Sam and I record every single episode of Just Break Up virtually. So I literally see this beautiful person on Zoom like multiple times a week. And every time Sam pops up into Zoom, I comment on their outfit. And I swear, like 99% of the time, I'm like, oh my God, that outfit is so cute. Where did you get it? Sam says quince. You too can upgrade your wardrobe with luxury essentials at unbeatable prices. Quince is here to transform the way you shop with a range of high quality items priced within reach. That's right. They have 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters for $50, organic cotton sweaters, washable silk tops, and timeless 14 karat gold jewelry. And the best part, 
all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middle person and passes that saving on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Y'all have heard me talk about my leather bag that I use as both a laptop bag and a diaper bag. And I love it because (laughs) (laughs) honestly, it looks really cute in every single circumstance that I use it. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash just break up for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E.com slash just break up to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash just break up. All right, head and heart workers, you know I'm all about tackling our money shame and becoming fiscally empowered, regardless of how much money we make or how much debt we have. I think it's such a crucial step in our own self-acceptance and empowerment. That's why I love that today's episode is sponsored by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. With Rocket Money, you can see all of your subscriptions in one place. And if you see something you don't want, you can just cancel it with a tap. You never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled unwanted subscriptions. And listen, we always talk to you about like conflict styles and open and honest communications, but honestly, save your energy and get Rocket Money to cancel those subscriptions for you. <laughs> Stop wasting yeah. you money. You don't need to practice that. Yeah. We don't need to do head and heart work with like customer service representatives. You know what I mean? Like just like... Use the middle person. (laughs) Just get Rocket Money in there to help you do what you need to do. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. That's rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. Rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. You know, so when I read your book, I read through that, that first section about the different types of parents thinking about my dad. And I was like, well, maybe some of these things, maybe this, right. And then I got to the part where it talks about how this shows up for you as an individual. And I read through the chapter on internalizers and I was like, okay, this is just a description of me. <laughs> like, it's like, <laughs> it is spot on to a T the way that I operate, especially in my, in my family with, with my parents and and my sister. And from there, I was able to say like, well, okay, if I'm acting like this, right, then there must be more to some of these things that I'm seeing and maybe it's sort of trusting myself and believing myself more that like the things that I had identified were actually true, right? My experience of my dad was actually true. So I'm curious for you, how do people come to this book, right? What are some of the ways that people experience sort of that awakening or that aha moment in this book that you've heard um, either from the work that you've done as a, as a clinical psychologist or from people's experiences of, of this book? Yeah, well, I guess there are two things there. One would be um, originally, how did they 
come into psychotherapy in the first mm. place? And then secondly, it would be how did they come to this book and how did they um, connect with the stuff in the book? But, mm-hmm. you know, first of all, people only come for psychotherapy when they have really gotten to a place where they're not feeling good. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody really is eager to get into therapy, although, you know, it can be a very, very enjoyable connection. So, um, it's not that people hate it. It's just that something is happening where your old ways of coping, or maybe it's that, maybe that mm-hmm. it's that you're tired of coping mm. with the situation. <laughs> For sure. And, yeah. Uh, and you don't know what to do. Um, maybe because you're still connected or maybe it's because you simply don't know what one does when you reach this point in a relationship. And I'm, I'm sure that your listeners are, um, give you a lot of feedback on that kind of situation. Yeah. But it's, um, they, yeah, they don't know what to do next. And that's usually when they're coming in and usually that's a great place for growth because mm-hmm. the person has gotten to the point where they're willing to say, you know, everything that I have been trying to do, like if I'm an internalizer and I keep trying to um, be sensitive and think about what I say and help the other person and be alert and watch out for, you know, that's not working. They're still mm-hmm. breaking down and screaming at me or they're still um, acting in a very infantile way. And, Mm -hmm. and I can't do any more of this than I'm already doing. (laughs) So it's really a a moment where people are, you know, at that point, they're open to the idea that maybe it's not just them Mm. because the people who come into therapy tend to be internalizers Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're people who take things in. Think about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they, they try to figure it out. They are very sensitive. Um, the externalizers, which is the other type of adult child of emotionally mature parents tend not to come into therapy unless they are court ordered or about to face a divorce. <laughs> Mm. Sure. <laughs> all I've heard about those. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but the but the internalizing approach to life um, makes them believe that thinking about it more and focusing on it more will improve it. And that's true if you're getting good help and mm. getting good information. Mm. If you're using the same old information and you're just focusing on that, things tend to get worse. Mm. So it's like even internalizers with, because they're avid learners and readers and they, you know, they like to internalize things, right? So it's very important that they come in and get some fresh ideas, not only for what to do, but what is actually going on in their relationships. Yeah. And so that would be in therapy, but in terms of the book and how people come to the book, um, it's, you know, I honestly don't know. (laughs) I, I didn't do it. Um, (laughs) it's been very much a word of mouth book. And I think that fortunately when people have read it, 
they've had this reaction where uh, a bunch of people have said to me, were you in my living room when I was growing up? Because everything (laughs) in here is what I went through. Uh (laughs) You know, so, so there's some, there's a, there's a universality about what's in the book that people recognize and they want to talk about, fortunately, um, Mm. because that's, that's how it's spread. My, uh, my son, who's, um, he's 31, lives in San Francisco and, uh, he told me about being at this, um, boating party or something. And somebody floats up on a raft next to him and says, I'm reading this great book. You've got to tell <laughs> <it." laughs> And he's like, dude, my mom wrote that book. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that image of a boat, like, like somebody just floating up to you. That's when you know you're spreading like the good word. You know? Yeah, like, that's right. When someone appears on the water. <laughs> yeah, I love point. that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so who, who knows how, how they, they find it, but uh, it, it's been, it's been wonderful that it's connected with so many people. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, something you said, um, in that answer is a great segue to the next question about using the same information again and trying to ultimately get a different, uh, outcome. Um, I was, Recently listening to an interview of you on the Unapologetically Sensitive podcast, and it was a great interview because you were kind of taking all of this, um, the the foundation of the emotionally immature parent and applying it to interpersonal relationships, which is honestly a romantic relationships as well, which is what Sam and I do most probably. Um mm-hmm. And in the interview, you were talking about, uh, you answered a question about people who are sort of stuck in a cycle or a pattern or like a holding period um, in which they could articulate their wounds. They could talk up, you know, they knew they had a hard childhood and challenging parents, um, but they kept finding themselves in relationships with difficult or emotionally immature people and um, sort of stuck in that self-awareness and not being able to move beyond that holding period. And Sam and I see that in our letters and we see that in our own lives, you know, in the past (laughs) or or whenever, where you're kind of in this moment of self-awareness and the awareness is empowering and painful, but it's almost, I don't know if we're afraid to move beyond that or we don't know how to move beyond that self-awareness. Um, and I was hoping you could sort of comment on that and or maybe point some ways for folks to move outside of that holding cell of, of articulation into empowerment or actual action or change. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great great little summary there of, of one of the things that is the hardest about working with the adult children of these uh, kinds of parents in psychotherapy. And I actually do training um, for a couple on a couple of platforms for therapists uh, mm. because these are these, in my mind, these are difficult people to treat mm. because they look like they would be the perfect psychotherapy client and in many ways, they are at a certain level, okay? I mean, as long as you're at the topsoil level, yes, it's, it's, it's a total coast because they're psychologically minded, they're inside-oriented, they're internalizers, so, you know, they introspect, they reflect. It, it's a therapist's dream. 
<laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, thank you. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're also kind of a dream friend, you're a dream partner. Because yeah, Sam and I, we're best friends, and we, all, we started this podcast because we love to talk about our feelings <laughs> <laughs> with each other. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so that, um, that is, uh, a wonderful thing, um, uh, up to a point to be like that. But then in therapy, what tends to happen is that the person begins to self inhibit and they have no idea that they're doing that, mm-hmm. but wow. they begin to protect the therapist against their own deepest, darkest feelings and secrets. Wow. Oh okay. <laughs> I, I feel red. I feel red right now. <laughs> I'm hot. I'm hot. I'm getting hot in here. <laughs> I feel like apologizing to my therapist on air right now. <laughs> Anyways, continue. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, gosh. But anyway, <laughs> um, no, and they're, they're not they're not conscious of doing that. Um, because it's such a reflexive reaction that when you start to, if you're one of these adult children, okay, when you start to feel something very powerful or you're in a state of extreme vulnerability or you even you want to cry or you feel seen, um, their instinctive reaction is to cover that up. Okay. Mm. And it's, there's no conscious choice involved in it. It's that they feel like their needs will be experienced by the other person as something radioactive. Mm. And that mm. the other person will start backing up and saying, Oh my God, aren't you weird? And I thought you were going to be a good patient. And here you are mm. like inundating me with all this crap I can't handle. That's what they think the therapist's reaction is going to be. Because that's the reaction in their earliest years with an emotionally immature parent. And you know that little kids, little two, three-year-olds, they are nothing but emotion <laughs> and needs, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they have to relate to their parent out of their emotion and out of their needs because that's wow. really pretty much all there is to them. And when the parent reacts to that, like there's something the matter with that kid, or they're angry with the parent because the child has just scared them with the intensity of their emotion, or the parent moves away from them because they have no idea how to comfort a child. When mm. all you know, when one of those things happen, the person takes in that poisonous idea that this is how all people will react to my deepest, darkest feelings and needs. So in therapy, it's really important to always, what one person called always privilege emotion. You know, the merest hint of emotion in a session, everything ought to stop right there and you focus in on what are you feeling right this moment? Mm. Because that pulls the person into self-examination of their internal process, which they probably learn to tune out too, because emotionally immature parents are not interested in their kids' inner worlds. 
They're mm. not interested in hearing more about what's going on inside you, darling. That No, that's not going to happen. And so part of the challenge for the therapist is to remember that this person looks perfectly fine, you know, from the neck up. I mean, mm. mentally, <laughs> intelligence, sensitivity, you know, they've got it all. But there is this inner child in the heart and in the gut that has not been able to get its needs met and has become convinced that all they can do is passively endure that loneliness. Mm. Wow. Mm. Okay. So you get a very self-defeating tendency to reinforce your own emotional loneliness because you've learned that it doesn't do any good to keep trying to connect. Mm. And so they often um, form relationships with people who are, you know, like their emotionally immature parents who really aren't interested in going into deep connection or talking about feelings or that kind of thing. And it's just such a wonderful thing when they run into somebody who is able to do that. Mm. And then they're able to begin to feel safer and they start to um, undo their own loneliness by moving toward the other person, but they're going to be scared to death when they're doing that. (laughs) So the therapist's job is to be aware of those vicissitudes, you know, um, and to understand that as much as they want to be, um, they want to get better. You really, as a therapist have to assist them in trusting that their feelings are normal and that they can mm. be handled with another person so that they are no longer scared by themselves and they no longer have the idea that other people will be scared of them. Yeah. Wow. That's, I know. <laughs> that's really profound. Yeah. I'm thinking of it too, in terms of romantic relationships, those people in that, in that, um, awareness stage and they can't actualize. Um, I think about how powerful it is to think about, who I'm, when I'm stuck in those stages, who am I trying to protect from my healing or my growth? Who, whose lives would be inconvenienced or um, what am I ashamed of in that I could potentially tap into if I allowed myself to stop protecting other people and access my true healing or my, um, or that higher self-awareness or whatnot. That's so powerful. Yeah. And you have to remember that emotionally immature people, whether they're your parents or they're a spouse or they're a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, they use what I call emotional coercions. And they do that by using these behaviors that coerce the other people into feeling fear, guilt, shame, or self-doubt. Mm. or all of the above. Yeah, bingo. Uh, Is that what I say there? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Because they go together, you know, they go together and they're very effective. Once you've trained a child to go Mm. to those places in response to, um, uh, you know, having expressed a need and inconvenienced in quote marks, that parent, uh, they will have, they will have internalized those feeling reactions and you have to do exactly what you were saying, Sierra, is you have to become curious about, huh, isn't it interesting that 
I'm feeling ashamed mm. when <laughs> they're the one <laughs> who yeah. actually, you know, was causing the problem here or refusing to communicate with me. And why do I feel ashamed and self-doubt when the other person is, you know, just reacting at will uh, without a thought for other people? Yeah, so that going back and questioning those those particular feelings, those coerced mm. affects uh, is very, very helpful uh, to get out of mm. this. That's powerful. It is. Absolutely. And sort of thinking about how to do this work around healing from the emotionally immature parents and and the ways that we've been taught to sort of experience the world because of that. Um, what are some of the tools that people can use or some of the practices that people can put in place? I hear you, you talked about um, curiosity there as sort of getting really curious about some of the, the things that are coming up for us and why we're having those reactions. Are there other things that you recommend for folks as they're trying to move into behaving and functioning differently in relationship with their parents or with the world? Yeah, you know, there, there are really two... Um two roads that I think people have to travel with that. Um, one is kind of, uh, I basically call it coaching, where they have to get the idea that they are, um, well, they have, they have to get the idea that they're dealing with an emotionally immature person. Mm. They have to get that concept. Um, they then have to, develop kind of a new way of looking at it. Like, well, maybe you have some rights too, or mm. maybe the things that you have like subconsciously agreed to put up with in the relationship, maybe you shouldn't be putting up with those things. Okay. Now these are kind of coaching goals because mm -hmm. you know, have to do with how I'm thinking about it, how I'm behaving, uh, what I should be expecting from other people, uh, all the way down to, um, if you're going to go visit your emotionally immature parent, be active because what people typically do is they go back into the family home. Gosh, Thanksgiving is coming up, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> Miraculously. <laughs> timing. Um, they tend to go back into the family home and fall under the spell of the, oh my God, that of, is the it. of the dominance <laughs> of the emotionally immature parent. And they kind of, you know, they kind of get those, uh, you know, those eyeballs and cartoons that twirl, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. they become entranced by the old family patterns. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to go into that with what I call maturity awareness, meaning that you're aware of emotional immaturity, and you're going to pretend that you're like an anthropologist going in to your family, and you're going to narrate to yourself the type of behaviors that you're seeing. Hmm. And that works because you're putting yourself in the uh, front part of your brain, in your verbal, analytical, prefrontal cortex which allows you to stay out of your emotional, unconscious parts of the brain. So when you're looking, you're observing, yep, that's what they're, yep, yeah, I'm feeling ashamed, yep. Um, when you're doing that, 
you are allowing yourself to stay in a part of your brain that isn't trapped by the reactions of those parents or those people in your family. And the other thing is that you try to stay active. That is, unstructured time is hypnosis time. That's when you're going to become re-entranced. So Mm. plan an outing. Uh, You go to a movie. Uh, You bring a puzzle. You you, um, uh, have some kind of of patterned, organized activity that you're going to engage in. Um, and you take breaks. You say, I need to step outside for a minute. You things start getting tense. You go to the bathroom. Um, you stay at a hotel instead of staying in their house. I don't mm. care how upsetting that is to them. Why it should be upsetting to a grown adult that you are going to stay in a hotel. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Of all the things that you do to your parent. Oh my God. <laughs> what you're really saying is, it really upsets me that you won't pretend that you're the child and I'm the parent. That's real. That's real. Yep. Real <laughs> so you, you want to be, um, you definitely want to be active. You want to have planned things and you want to stay in that observational mode when you're around them. Mm. That's helpful. That's super helpful. Thank you. You've touched on a little of this, I think, already, but with the great privilege and opportunity to ask you directly, (laughs) I have like a vague and specific question about my journey when it comes to unpacking my parental relationships and sort of um, rewiring some of that shame triggers that you were kind of talking about, the coercion. So on the podcast and in our personal life, my personal life, Sam and I talk a lot about, um, you know, the the fact that everybody is living in their own reality, you know, and that kind of helps us understand when when two realities are just not mashing up, you know, it allows you empathy for yourself and the other person because you're like, we're just seeing things differently, etc. We also talk a lot about Um, everybody is on their own journey, healing journey. I love what you talked about in terms of emotional intelligence being only one thread of our development and different threads can develop at different times. Um, And also we talk about how like accountability and empathy can exist at the same time, you know? So these are three pillars that I definitely am committed to, that I practice every day, that I think of every day when it comes to analyzing my parental relationships And still, and still, and yet, you know, (laughs) I so struggle with, I struggle with those truths of that my parents are on their healing journey, you know, and that they have dealt with whatever that they have dealt with. And at the same time, claiming my truth alongside theirs or whatnot, there's tension there still for me. And I just was wondering if you could speak to any of that, how, how to practice, I mean, you talked about like the anthropologist's lens, you know, but how to claim that truth and know that that truth can exist alongside others, I guess, and how to prioritize it or to how to, how to treat it with the care and the nurturing that you have been taught to give to other people's truths. <laughs> I love that. That, that is so true. The, the care and nurturance that you've been taught to give to other people's truths. I love that. That is so well said. 
because that's exactly what the emotionally immature person demands from other people in their relationships. They say, essentially, you are responsible for my emotional stability, so don't upset me. And you are responsible for helping me maintain my self-esteem, so don't make me feel bad about myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, those things are are huge. Um, Other than like reading your book (laughs) and and going to therapy, you know. Every once in a while when I'm confronted with a massive truth, my mind goes blank. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like we, my mind. We edit those out of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But but tell me tell me again what you said. It was it was um the, the realities. Yes. Yeah, so mm-hmm. we we work a lot with that, especially in relationships. We get letters where people just they're not seeing that this person is never going to see it the way they will or what, or whatnot, Mm -hmm. or their origin Mm -hmm. story is different or their love language or whatever it is. So we practice um, accepting that as a truth and finding comfort and empowerment in it. And when I look at my parents or my pivotal relationships like that, um, it, it's hard to, I know that more than one truth can exist at one time, but sometimes it's hard to, I feel deeply responsible for other people's feelings and I don't know how to give myself that same, that my truth, the same care. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I hope if you send me a transcript, you include this part in it. <laughs> I'll send you, I should pay you like your hourly rate too, right? Yeah. If you send me an audio recording, please include this with it. Okay. <laughs> That's kind, yeah. For sure. <laughs> Because this is good stuff. Uh, you'll see it showing up in the workbook coming in. Uh, oh, good, good. Love it. Um, no, but but that's a. It's an excellent point about the realities and and what do you do when other people have their realities and you have your. Okay, well, the thing about emotionally mature people is that they base reality on the basis of what they feel, what it feels like to them. Um, and that is really tricky because their major defense in dealing with unpleasant reality is either to dismiss it, deny it, or distort it. Mm. That's Mm. how they deal with troublesome realities. They, in a sense, pretend it's not there. Okay. So I, I really do want you to think about this question of whether there are two truths or not, Mm. because we don't get to make up our truth about reality. We really don't. Um, And especially with the world of emotions, um, if you have a truth about how you feel, you are the beginning and end of the expert on that. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not about what they think you should feel. It's about what you really feel. Now, that is a personal truth. Mm. But what will happen is that you will end up feeling crazy because they will deny, dismiss, or distort that piece of of your reality because they can't handle it. Mm -hmm. They're scared to death of emotional intimacy. So they they will react in ways that make you feel uncertain of yourself. Um, 
And one of the things that is very, very helpful to people when they're learning to deal with these kinds of parents is to entertain the notion that this parent is not attuned to reality. Mm. Okay. I mean, we, we act like um, we have to, you know, give equal uh, opportunity to all versions of reality. Mm. Mm. You know, if you say it, that's your, that's your truth. It is your truth, but that's not where it stops with emotionally immature people because they want to make it everybody's truth. Right. (laughs) Right. And, And the problem is, that their interpretation is based on emotion. It's right. not typically based on objective things that are verifiable and so forth. It, it's about what it feels like to them. So when people have to come to grips with these realities about their parents or about their spouse or whoever it is, that can be scary because it's like finding out that you know, your parent is uh, really not in touch with reality in some areas mm-hmm. or that this person truly goes paranoid at moments mm-hmm. um, or that this person seems to be more invested in dominating you than any kind of relationship with you. I mean, mm-hmm. these are these are truths that are a little bit scary. Yeah. You know? I mean, Halloween's coming, too. It's like, you know, like. <laughs> Oh my God, my father's a zombie. Um, like I never mm-hmm. noticed that about him before. <laughs> right, right. But you start realizing what you're dealing with, and that's scary. And it's yeah. also very, very sad mm-hmm. because that child part of you is losing the security of that parent that they had. Okay, the way that they saw them as a hero or a resource or you know, whatever in the emotional realm. And so it can be very, very upsetting. And sooner or later, you get to this place where you have to really grieve what they are unable to do. Um, mm. Ultimately, you the relationship that you have with them should end up depending on who they really are. Mm, that's real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because when you keep trying to have an emotionally intimate relationship with someone who's scared to death of that, it's really hard on you. Mm-hmm. And they will protect themselves against that with everything they've got. Mm-hmm. So part of what I try to help people do to do is to look at that often very painful truth. Uh, that their parent just can't do it. They can't be there for them. And Mm. there is release and relief on the other side of that in which you can have some kind of relationship in which you're not beating your head against a brick wall, trying to make them grow up. Yeah. Can Mm. accept them, you know, for who they are, but that has to be managed because emotionally immature people draw you in in such a way that you're reinvolved in the old stuff before you even realize it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that any of us gets to a point where we're totally immune to that. You have to continue to, to keep your finger on the pulse of that because you can get drawn back in. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that has been profound for me in doing some of this work is that idea of, um, 
of what you were talking about of sort of like, how do I approach this relationship differently and expect different things out of my parents and not try and coach them or not try and sort of slam myself against the brick wall that is their inability to do what I am fundamentally asking them to do. Um, and I think one of the things that comes up for me is just like a level of frustration that not only was I not getting the the care and support that I needed from my parents or that I wanted from my parents. And also now it's sort of my job to figure out how to navigate this space with them. And I'm curious if that is a is a thing that happens a lot for folks that you work with of, of sort of that, that, that's the feeling of unfairness, right? Of like, yes. wow, okay, cool. I have to deal with this. Like you're, you're, you're not going to do anything, right? Cool, I'm wondering Dad. if that's also, yeah, <laughs> thanks for that. Appreciate it, right? Which would be honestly like the therapy for the last th three years is like, yeah. cool, dad, thanks for that. It's like yeah. really my mantra. Um, uh, I'm wondering if that's something that comes up for, for folks that you work with and, and how, do you, how do you navigate that? How do you move through that with folks? Yeah, that's that's the uh, kind of the middle to late part of therapy that takes mm. a long time because that and that's in therapy. That's what we would call working through working mm. it through. Um, it's not enough to have the insight or the information. And I'm big on psychoeducation because I think if you get the right concepts, things really move much faster. Mm. But coming to grips with something like that is so hard. I mean, people really struggle with it. They can't mm. believe that they can't get this person who can speak English, uh, you know, uh, work a room at a cocktail party and run a business. They can't mm -hmm. believe that they can't reach them with good communication skills. Wow. Or yes. With a, or with a sincere heart. You know, mm -hmm. that is like that takes such a long time for the person to come to grips with the fact that it doesn't work. You know, that that part is not something that no matter how sincere you are or what good communication skills you learn, you're not going to be able to have them say, oh, you know, that's right. Uh, that wasn't <laughs> fair of me. I wasn't thinking about you. Gosh, I've been uh -huh. so selfish all these years. It must have been very hard on you, son. I mean, <laughs> the odds of that happening are very small. I'm not saying it's impossible sure. because I actually have had a couple of parents call me and say, my adult children gave me this book. Can I come see you? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, it's not impossible, um, but it's, it's unlikely. Put it that way. Sure. And you have to, you know, you have to keep at it until something in you begins to give up on turning mm -hmm. them into the parent that you wish they could be. That's wow. what I mm -hmm. call the healing fantasy. That if I mm -hmm. could be an ideal enough person, I could create a parent who we could have, we could come together, there could be mutual understanding and mutual healing which would be so good for both of us, mm -hmm. right? It would be a beautiful thing. And you can sense that. You can sense how beautiful that would be. And every once in a while, a parent, you know, like near their deathbed will come back with something that shows that this little hidden part of them had noticed something about mm. the dynamic. Mm. Yeah. Sure. But yeah. it's just, 
the person has to be able to work that through and work that through and not feel discouraged about, you know, I can't get it or I can't make myself remember that because it's a big one and it takes time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, wow. Yeah, this is a great conversation. Yes. So thank you. Uh, it's been <laughs> and, fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So um, we have three questions that we ask everyone that we are interviewing. So we're going to ask you those as well. The first question is, what's a piece of relationship advice that you um, have given up or that you don't believe in anymore that you once believed in? Yeah, I've always been a kind of a iconoclast when it came to relationship myths. <laughs> really far back to, to yeah. that. Um, but I, I think um, we say um, a lot in, in uh, America about relationships, that relationships take hard work. Mm. And I think I used to subscribe to that, but it was so long ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, sure. I did not. But when, yeah. but when I hear that, I go like, oh no, because mm. if, if a relationship is hard and if communication is something that you have to really work at, what that tells you is that somebody in the relationship doesn't have great empathy mm. and somebody is very reactive and somebody is doesn't have a great sense of fairness and it's not equal mm. because if all those things are taken care of relationships are not terribly hard i mean we all go through hard times i don't mean to minimize that right um, they take but, work not necessarily hard work <laughs> well no i want to i want to uh, i want to say that no it it is not work. It's applied effort when needed. Hmm. So if we're not communicating very well, or you did something I don't like, I'm going to make effort to rectify that, to see if we can, you know, understand each other and come out with a solution for that and express my feelings and have them understand me. And I'll try to understand them. That takes effort. Okay. But what work connotes is that I'm putting out more effort than you are. Mm. If I'm working at it. If both people are working, so to speak, both people are making effort, it feels productive. But when you're working at something, that's a drain. Mm. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with making effort toward improving your relationship mm. or improving your communication. But it shouldn't be something that you have to go to work on, so to speak. Mm. It, it, it's, it, it's possible to do it another way. So, so that would be, I guess, the thing that I used to believe that, um, yeah, if, if, you, if you can sit down and work at it, that's a sign of a good relationship. Because I go back before that and say, hey, how come we're having to sit down and work at something that many people are able to solve through empathy and fairness mm. and uh, openness to communication without hard work mm -hmm. with just that a little bit so of effort sense. here and there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. 
And on every episode, we like to shout out something to our listeners that we love, that we want to set them up with. We call it our blind date. And this week, this episode, we're going to set them up with the suggestion from you, which would be... Yeah, I'd like to set them up on a blind date with a gentleman by the name of Gavin DeBecker. Okay. And and his book is The Gift of Fear. Mm. Um, It's it's, uh, been out there for a long time. But that book, um, I actually ran into a, a guy at a dinner party that somehow he got on the subject of Gavin DeBecker and The Gift of Fear. And he said hang on, wait a minute. I've got a whole bunch of these books in my trunk. I'm going to go get one for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) He was so crazy about this book that he kept those books in his trunk so that he could hand them out whenever he like-minded people. So it's about how we have the gift of fear within us. It's really instinct that if we listen to it, it will always try to tell us what to do in a situation to keep ourselves safe. Mm. And it's a, it's a wonderful um, endorsement of the true self that we Mm. have a part of us that wants us to be safe. And if we're not muddling it up with too many rationalizations and worries, this gift of fear will speak to us and it will keep us safe. It's it's really an enjoyable read. Mm. Awesome. Thank you. And then our third question is, um, where can people find you and how can they support you and your work? Okay. Um, I can be found online. Just uh, Google me at uh, Lindsay Gibson. <laughs> um, and also my website is Dr. Lindsay with an A, lindsaygibson.com. And there are, um, there's a blog and some articles and, you know, just various things that might be interesting to people who want to get to know more about my work. Great. Thank you. And in general, I think Sam and I can echo, Sam will echo my thanks. Um, this conversation has been so enjoyable. It is, we're, we are so grateful that you took the time to talk with, talk with us, that you um, shared your insight and that you are continuing this life of contributing to so many people's healing, so many people's self-revelations. Um, we're just so grateful for your time today, and we can't wait for our listeners to go out and buy your brand new book, The Self-Care for Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. If they haven't already got its parent book, get it, parent. <laughs> <laughs> Bad joke. <laughs> anyway, um, we just want to say a final thank you so much. And to our listeners, if you have enjoyed this episode, make sure to stay tuned for more Head and Heart Work conversations every two weeks on our primary feed. And if all else fails, just break up. <laughs> <laughs>